0: It is so difficult for juries to believe, and for really sometimes the public to believe, that women engage in this kind of behavior.
1: Well, it's always great to give a shout out to child advocacy centers, because they do help so much, not only with the victims, but putting together a case and, and not re-victimizing the victims.
2: This case probably would not have turned out the same way that it did, because we truly had to follow the money in this case to add credibility to this, this girl's, these girls' statements.
0: Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multi-dimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed Color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multi-dimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case. Listeners get ten percent off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case.
1: Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host Jim Clementi with my co-host Francie Hakes. Hi, Jim. How are you, Francie? Good. Always great to do this show with you. And today we have another very special guest, uh, Paula Sparks, who's an investigator with the state of Georgia. How you doing, Paula? I'm good, thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today on Best Case, Worst Case. And we'd like to sort of get a little background on you. Tell us what you did for your professional career.
2: Uh, I was a local police officer in the state of Georgia, Cobb County Police Department. Um, I retired in 2012 from uh, as a major in the Crimes Against Persons Unit, which basically covered Homicide, robbery, crimes against children, crime scene, and and the likes of of that type of uh, investigations.
0: And Paula, how long were you with Cobb County PD? Twenty
2: eight years.
0: Wow, twenty eight
1: years. That's that's a long time. <laughs> and you, it was, obvi-
2: but it was fulfilling.
1: Yeah, well, you obviously um, did a great job, and you worked some pretty serious offenses. So. Why don't we get right into it. What was your best case in your law enforcement career? What kind of crime was it?
2: Um, when when you say best, I think of what the best of an outcome was. So th- what what my base, best case was, um, it was in reference to a child abuse case, uh, sexual abuse.
0: And um, when when was this case in your career, just uh, estimating, Paula? I think it was in the arena of
2: 2012. 2003.
0: And Paula, that's about the same time you and I knew each other when you were a lieutenant in the Crimes Against Children unit at the Cobb County Police Department, right? Correct. Yes.
1: So because of the nature of this particular crime, we're not going to be disclosing the names of the victim or of the offenders, and we'll just call them Defendant 1 and Defendant 2. Is that okay, Paula?
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Okay, great. So can you tell us how this case came to your attention first instance?
2: Um, well, there was an outcry initially, but that happened in another jurisdiction. Um, that The jurisdiction attempted to uh, press charges on um, the mother initially for some situations that the mother was involved in, and she was able to um, Uh, elude being convicted and she came to cobb county um it came to our attention through uh outcries from the victim two victims uh, two sisters um that their mother was selling them or basically allowing them and she was present to be sexually abused by um um, one of the perpetrator a a defendant um and then that's where our investigation began so
1: so the victims, instead of being able to run to their mother for help, they were actually being abused by their mother. She was actually coordinating and allowing sexual victimization of her daughters.
0: Yes. So, Paula, you described that this mother was exploiting her daughters by allowing others to sexually assault them. How old were these girls at the at the time this occurred?
2: Both of the girls were under 10 years of age.
0: Oh, Paula, under 10. And was there, um, you had said that she got away with something similar in another jurisdiction. The girls made outcries, or at least one of them did. To whom did the children disclose that this was going on once they came into your jurisdiction?
2: I believe it was a neighborhood child that they had talked about the situation and that's when it came to our attention
0: and so what did how did you respond to the to the case obviously you opened an investigation but what were some of the first things that you did
2: well one of the first things that you do in any investigation is you uh, begin interviews of the children and that's exactly what we did and we got very what we considered at that time credible information from the from the girls as to what had been occurring um
0: and paula when you say that one of the most important things to do in an investigation like this is, is to get a good interview of the children, is that what's called a forensic interview?
2: That's correct. It's a forensic interview. Um, it's um, with somebody who knows how to pose the questions based on the age range of the children and be delicate with the questions that are necessary to be asked.
1: Did you have a child advocacy center nearby with a forensically trained child interview specialist?
2: Yes. Um, In my jurisdiction, the detectives were the forensically trained um, interviewers. They were the investigators and the interviewers, but they had also been sent to school for forensically trained interviews.
0: And that was the Safe Path Child Advocacy Center there in Marietta, Georgia, right, Paula?
1: That's correct. Well, it's always great to give a shout out to Child Advocacy Centers because they do help so much, not only with the victims, but putting together a case and and not revictimizing the victims.
0: Well, and as I know from being having been an assistant district attorney there in Cobb County, I worked very closely with Paula's unit and the Safe Path Child Advocacy Center, where uh, detectives Paula's unit was actually co-located in the same building, and they still are today co-located in the same building with the Child Advocacy Center so that they can conduct interviews in a child-friendly atmosphere. You know, the walls are painted with butterflies and balloons. The furniture is child-sized, and there are therapists and uh, forensic evaluators there. And as Paula said, the Cobb County Crimes Against Children detectives, I think Paula, and what is a tribute to Cobb County, are all trained to be forensic interviewers, which is definitely not the case in the rest of the country, is it?
2: That's correct. That's that's atypical um, in most advocacy center situations.
0: Right. So you got the children, uh, or the a detective interviewed both the children. I assume they were interviewed separately.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. You want to get the the best and most pristine information that you can right from the get go of these children.
0: And Jim and I do a lot of uh, training on this particular topic. Things like. Um, indicators of veracity. You said a few minutes ago that the children gave what you thought was credible information. Tell us about the information and why you thought it was credible.
2: Um, Well, basically, both of them gave um, fairly similar information, as you just alluded to, in in very separate interviews. Um, And both of them were consistent in nature. Um, And they gave details that either a child wouldn't, shouldn't know or wouldn't know and gave details, especially in this case, it was against their mother, and they gave us very valid and, and in-depth details about the situation involving their mother, such as not only was she providing each of these children to this man for sexual um, situations, but she, in some instances, both of the girls disclosed that the mother was present and holding their hand so that that they would go through with these situations and she would get paid for
1: it. Wow, that's really, really awful. And when I <clears throat> when I come into these kinds of cases where it's actually you know, the people who are responsible for giving the child life and who are responsible for protecting that child throughout their childhood to take advantage of that child like that and for their own gain... Um, it just, it's just reprehensible, and no kid should have to go through that. So thank you for championing these kids and, and doing this kind of work, because I know it's very difficult.
0: Well, and you know, one of the things I think is very significant about this case, Paul, and I'm glad you brought it to our attention so that our listeners uh, know, is that in, it seems like in the vast majority of sexual abuse cases, the defendant, the offender, is always a man. And or male anyway. And here you have not just female offender, but a female mother offender. And it is so difficult for juries to believe and for really sometimes the public to believe that women engage in this kind of behavior because our popular culture says, you know, mama lion protecting her young. And sadly, Paula, we know that very often that's not true like this case. Right.
2: Correct. Yes. Uh, seldom do we find that mothers are actually the as overt in the manner that this woman was. Normally it's, they turn the blind, they turn a blind eye so as not to disrupt the family and those type of things. But in this case, and, and something we rarely see is that this was an extremely over action by the mother, as you mentioned, the person we expect to protect the child.
1: So uh, not that this would actually mitigate the, 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 the reprehensible conduct on the part of the mother, but was she addicted to drugs? Was there something that she was using this money for that, that you could find in this investigation?
2: No, I think that it was just that that was an income. It was the the manner of lifestyle that she wanted to, uh, be exposed to and the, the extreme amount of money that she was getting, um, allowed her to uh, um, be a part of that lifestyle. Um, you know, she um, – my, my point behind this being one of the best cases is this never would have come to – we, we, we were able to put, put her through trial or put her to trial, and she absconded on us, and, but not for um, a detective and, and a very specific detective, and I think Francia uh, can attest to this, most of us are trained in, in different types of homicide, child, sexual abuse or whatever, but most of us are not trained most of us are not trained in the white collar situation of crimes. I know I'm not. I would not I'd be a terrible financial but if it had not been placed in the hands of this specific detective who was able to, to basically not to use a, a old adage, but follow the money, this case probably would not have turned out the same way wow. that it did. because um, you truly had to follow the money in this case to add credibility to these this girl's these girls' statements. And even though we think they're very credible, you, you're, you always want something there to add uh, further evidence to it.
0: Let's give a shout out to the detective. I mean, I think that sounds like great work on his or her part.
2: Absolutely. I'm going to say it was a group effort. Um, it was it was a fantastically group effort where one would investigate and one took the, the money aspect and and made a spreadsheet out of it. That's so great. It was the Crimes Against Children Unit, but yeah, it and was a, it was a fantastic group investigation.
1: And how, roughly, how much money are we talking about now?
2: We're we're talking hundreds of thousands, of, not hundred. I'm sorry, in the oh, right up to about hundreds of thousands of dollars of of money. This was a very uh, this was an individual who spent a lot of money. For this, I mean, it I think as we know, it's probably very hard to find somebody, especially in local communities, who's willing to do what this woman did. So when he found it, he was willing to pay for it.
1: Did he do this and did the mother pimp out her daughters over and over and over again? Yes, there
2: were multiple times.
0: And so, Paula, when you say the case started in another jurisdiction and uh, the it was an unsuccessful uh, prosecution over there, were there multiple offenders that were paying to sexually assault these girls, or was it the same one offender throughout the entire time?
2: In the other jurisdiction, we believe that we believe that um, there were family members who abused the children. In Cobb County's jurisdiction, we believe that it was only one paid offender who uh, that the that the children were involved with.
0: And was there any uh, child pornography, images of child sexual abuse being produced in this kind of case? Was he or was the mother no. recording it in any way?
2: Not that we could find, no. Not, not And not that the children um, – there were pictures, but I don't believe there were any pictures that were of that nature.
0: Okay, so your investigation was partly financial because you were following the money. Then you had the children's uh, interviews. Let's talk a little bit about physical evidence because I think our listeners will be quite interested, although I think our listeners are sophisticated crime uh, purveyors, and so maybe they know this already. But I'm interested to talk to you a little bit, Paula, about whether or not you were able to get any DNA or forensic um, evidence from the bodies of the children, which juries today often expect and don't know what the reality is in these kinds of cases. So can you talk about that for a little bit?
2: Yeah, no, by the time we got involved, I mean, I'm not saying that it wasn't occurring, but it hadn't occurred for several days. So there's not any typically in any child abuse investigation, typically, unless you're talking about some type of heinous rape or forcible situation. Um, th- this These situations, you typically do not find any type of DNA evidence. Um, and in this case, we found that it was no difference.
0: And was did no these did these young girls under ten years old have to undergo a, a rape kit that is a, a sexual assault exam?
2: Um, we not to the degree that we would expect in the hospital. That we have uh, trained nurses who understand the situations um, in Cobb County. I'm not sure how it is in others, but uh, pediatric nurses who understand who are, who are trained in the field of uh, child. Um, sexual abuse and they know the things to look for but no not in the manner of a true sexual assault kit that they have to go through that
0: and that's again because cobb county has nurses that have this advanced training
1: correct well the next thing i'd like to talk about is how you actually put the case together how you did the investigation how you were able to bring this poor excuse for a mother to justice Paula, can you tell us how this investigation proceeded at this point?
0: You've you've interviewed the children. You've gotten really good, credible statements. You're following the money. How did you get from that to arresting these two offenders? How did you find the man who was paying the mother to abuse her children?
2: The the children were able to tell us who this individual was.
0: And were, were they there? were they related, or was he a stranger? How did no. how was he connected to the mother?
2: They were strangers initially, and then they they met in some. Uh, I think through the other individual that was involved, the mother's sister, and basically a conversation ensued, and uh, found out that he found himself a gold mine and a mother who was willing to allow him to abuse his, the children.
1: Was this all done face to face, over the phone, over the internet? What the crime itself? The crime itself was yes, face to face.
0: All right. Great. And so then you the children were able to identify their assault, the person who was assaulting them. Obviously, they inculpated the mother. And so at that point, did you feel like you had your case built and were ready to make arrests?
2: Yes, we issued warrants initially on the mother and the uh, aunt and the uh, both of them fled the jurisdiction of Cobb County.
0: And how was the aunt involved in all of this? If
2: the mother wasn't able to um, provide the children, or pick them up, or uh, meet the time frame that the perpetrator was asking, um, the aunt would be involved in that.
1: Wow, I mean,
2: and some some of the money indicated that also through the money orders and through uh, payment and deposits and things like that.
0: So the aunt was profiting also in this scheme.
2: Um, I would presume that the, the the mother was sharing. Yes.
1: Wow. So did did you actually end up charging the mother and her sister?
2: We ended up taking warrants out on them, yes. And later on, um, the mother was located and she was with another uh, individual and she was pregnant. And that is where part of my best case scenario comes out is that she we were able to uh, take that child. Of course, she ended up in jail, but we, I think and I'm going to guess based on her previous behavior that prevented another child from being subject to a sexual abuse situation.
1: Well, it sounds like that's absolutely true. So the mother left and after she was charged and then at some point, did you go to trial before she was recovered or did you wait till she was actually arrested to go to trial? Yes. Okay, so tell us what happened next. What was the—did she leave the jurisdiction, the mother and the aunt?
2: They did. They fled the jurisdiction, and then they were initially found at an, in another jurisdiction. They were brought back, and they pled guilty. So we did not go to trial prior to their absence.
1: Okay.
0: And when they pled guilty, did they agree to cooperate against the other offender, or had he already been convicted by then?
1: He had killed himself by then. He had committed suicide. And was that after— this hit the news, or what What were the circumstances around that?
2: That was during the time of the investigation, before we ever took charges.
1: But had he been pointed out? Had the investigators interviewed him? Had the other defendants, the mother and the aunt, contacted him and let him know that the cops were coming?
0: Um, that would be a guess. But so you guys didn't have a chance then to interview him at all? We did not. So he killed himself before you were even able to get to that stage. That's correct. And then mom and sister fled, they came back and they pled guilty. What were their um what what did they what were they sentenced to?
2: Once they pled guilty and convicted, they were both sentenced to an extended time in
1: prison. So so that's good. At least they were not able to get access to those kids anymore and um hopefully um other kids her newest baby, never became victim because of that. Um, but you mentioned that the other offender, uh, that this guy who we will not name, um, committed suicide. And and just for our listeners' benefit, um, if he was still a sex offender who was out there, we would say his name, but we don't want to even give him the the benefit of people knowing who he is at this point. Um, luckily he's out of the situation but and he's not a risk to anybody anymore but in terms of committing suicide I know in the course of when I was in uh, law enforcement and working child sex crimes that a number of defendants did commit suicide and and many people were like good that's what should happen and uh, and on and on but I don't think they understand how dangerous that is when a person is a very thin line between suicide and homicide. And when a person has given up all hope and wants to end their own life, they are very high risk at taking out other people. So we should never like encourage that kind of situation because it could be very dangerous. I've had police officers shot at or shot by defendants who felt they were trapped in a situation like this and and were going to kill themselves and wanted to take out the police with them. So it's a very critical time um, during the course of investigations like this. And I just want to warn people around people who get caught for this kind of thing that they can become very dangerous at this point.
0: I had a similar case, Jim, when I first started as an assistant U.S. attorney, and it was back in my old home jurisdiction. We had a case where we had someone suspected of trafficking in child pornography. He worked as a clown at children's birthday parties. And when the local detectives responded with the federal agents to arrest him to his house, he barricaded himself into his garage and he had at least one firearm. And one of his children, who was a teenager, was in the house with him. So the law enforcement responding to the scene were concerned, once he started shooting at them, that that child was in danger. And so they were not going to let it be some kind of standoff situation just in case the child was in danger. So they entered the garage very quickly. And while they were entering the garage, the guy slit his throat. And I believe he died on the way to the hospital or shortly thereafter. Paula, do you remember that case?
2: I do. I've responded to that one as a critical incident individual, not as uh, from a sexual abuse standpoint. But yes, I remember that very vividly.
0: And so just like Jim said a few minutes ago, those people who are um, hopeless, who understand they're about to get arrested for these child sex crimes, can be very dangerous. And that's why it's risky for law enforcement in these cases, even though they're not, you know, drug dealers or murderers, they are about to be accused of or convicted of a sex crime, and so they can be very dangerous.
1: Absolutely. Well, Paula, we really appreciate you telling us about this case. And just to sum up for our listeners, can you tell us why you picked this particular case out of all the, the hundreds of cases that you worked during your career as your best case? Uh,
2: um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, any time that a child is, is sexually abused, I think that's just a heinous situation. But when everything comes together in the end, um, when there's a conviction and you get the children out of the situation where there's perpetrators, be it the mother or whomever is the perpetrator, and you get them help, such as from Children's Advocacy Centers, uh, Safe Path in our jurisdiction, and then when, in this case, the mother was pregnant and we prevent any other children from being exposed to that same type of sexual abuse, I think that it's a win-win for everybody. And in this case... Although it was some heinous circumstances that uh, the case revolved around, in the end, I think it was a win win for everybody. The children got in and got help, and we prevented another child that was um, uh, close to, to uh, birth from being involved in the same search situ- work situation. Well,
1: I think that's great. And, and just so people know um, that in these cases, a lot of times people think, well, the child's life is destroyed, and, and they could never go on to live a good, happy, healthy, productive life, but it's not true. I'm living proof of that. I was victimized when I was a kid, and I still happen to have a great life after afterwards. I just want to caution people who, who work these cases or who talk about these cases to not say that it destroys a child's life because they can grow up to live a ha- happy, healthy, productive life, as long as they get help, and as long as somebody does help, bring them justice, and so we want to thank you for for doing that paula you're you're a hero.
2: Well, I appreciate that, but there are many, many heroes out there who are doing exactly this and continue to do this
1: Well
0: that's absolutely the case, Paula. and we try to remember that whenever Jim and I, Jim and I teach to thank the people that we're helping train in these kinds of cases, and I know you do the same thing. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us all of this great information about child advocacy centers and how there can be a happy ending to a grim case. Oh, my
1: pleasure. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for being here, Paula, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. For now, signing off for Best Case, Worst Case. Thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case an XG production produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios LA. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba and hosted by Wondery.